Hello, good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for joining us for our Q3 2022 market update. Uh, my name is Christopher Heck, and I'm the Chief Investment Officer at Tanager Wealth Management. And we've prepared a few uh, interesting points for you today, just to discuss how the market uh, is doing, where it's been, and where we think the markets are going uh, in the, the near term and medium term. And then what should we do uh, in light of all of that information? I'll be joined by Sam Lees, who's a senior portfolio manager at Tanager Wealth Management. And there will be time at the end for Q&A. And there's also, you may notice a Q&A button at the bottom of the webinar screen. So do feel free to uh, type in some questions and we'll try to address them as uh, it fits the flow of the, the discussion at that moment in time, or indeed try to cover off as many as we can at the end of the webinar. So thank you again for uh, taking time out of your schedule to attend, and let's get started. So it's certainly an interesting time, as the old Chinese curse goes, uh, that we're living in. Whether we're looking at a war or um, any number of uh, market meltdowns or melt-ups from the recent liability-driven investment uh, implosion in the UK pension markets and long-dated gilts, to uh, a restructuring of supply chains and uh, a general um, inflationary trend upwards over the past 12 months, or indeed closer to home, as I know many of us live in the United Kingdom, uh, what is going on with our, our own government here and whether or not we're in recession and what the uh, markets are telling us uh, relative to you know, GBP strength or weakness uh, in the world. So I've tried to find a few pictures that try to capture just the mood of several of those large themes, whether it's market structure such as LDI, or indeed uh, the difficult to ignore uh, war in Ukraine uh, and, and Russia's invasion of Ukraine, um, or inflation, or indeed the UK government's challenges. Um, we can certainly send these slides out later, so I won't um, belabor any of these points other than to point out that um, uh, these are again just a high level summary of some of the the more interesting things that we're finding in the marketplace today, not the least of which, again, is the uh, the war in the Ukraine, which is certainly uh, a humanitarian tragedy, uh, but is also, um, for our purposes today, caused many ripples throughout the financial markets and the world. So as an update from where we were uh, at the beginning of the year, and I don't have to um, tell everyone that markets have been a challenge. What's really been extraordinary this year is the size of the market challenge, the, um, the continued grind lower, and indeed uh, something that I, I know I haven't seen in my 25 years of, of uh, being a finance professional is this incredible high correlation between stocks and bonds. Um, it is extraordinarily unusual to have you know, global stocks going down 20% and global bonds going down 20% at the same time, thus having a, a fantastically high correlation. Uh, for those of you that are not statisticians, uh, one or 100% means perfect lockstep uh, together. So 93 is a very highly correlated um, number indeed. And there haven't been many places to, um, to wait it out. So it's not as if, you know, Europe is having a meltdown and then the US is doing well. Uh, that certainly could have been the story many years uh, out of the past 20, where the U.S. has led the way and still been positive, uh, but you know the other regions of the world have done less well. Um, it's really been niggling to find differences amongst uh, the various stock markets in the world. And similarly, uh, on the fixed income side, um, with the specter of inflation and perhaps the dreaded R-word recession looming over our heads, uh, the rising rates that the central banks have deployed to to combat inflation, because as I like to say, to a man with a hammer, every problem is a nail. Um, central banks like to raise rates to combat inflation uh, from the Volcker 1980 playbook. Uh, there hasn't been many places to hide either. Some have done slightly worse than others. Um, you know, the US is perhaps, as the saying goes, the least dirty shirt uh, amongst fixed income asset classes, quote, only losing 15%. Um, I will tell you again that this is definitely the worst fixed income year going back to uh, the 1930s. Um, and that's really when decent records started for corporate bond pricing and whatnot. So that's just about as far back as you can reliably go uh, in the US uh, bond market that includes corporates. 
Um, and I can tell you it's the worst year for treasuries since 1788, which if you remember is just about the post-revolutionary war period, if you do remember your, um, your history lessons from high school. So uh, definitely an extraordinary time, uh, an, an extraordinarily difficult time to be an investor. And perhaps the question we get the most is, uh, what is the, what are the currencies doing? Um, because almost by definition, uh, those of us that work at Tanager and um, the vast preponderance of our clients um, have a foot on either side of the Atlantic, whether it's in the pound or the eurozone, um, or indeed in in the U.S. dollar zone. So currency is something that comes up just in a matter of course of of conversation, and indeed how we think about things. I know it took me six or seven years to stop thinking in dollars. Um, after I had already moved here to the UK. And the short story here is uh, the dollar is indeed the king. So uh, if you're going to have a war and if there is going to be extreme volatility in the markets and indeed social unrest, um, as it were, perhaps um, more due to the specter of war in Europe, which is never a good thing as history has taught us, uh, you really wanna have the safest haven to park your cash. And without a doubt, uh, that has been the dollar. Um, really minimal differences between Euro and, and GBP. Uh, and then I guess the, the third major currency outside the dollar, the yen, uh, which does live in its own little world, uh, has done uh, unfortunately a bit worse. But again, Japan is a bit of a special case as they've been stuck in a, um, a stagflationary environment for, for 25 or 30 years. So their currency, I would say, is not necessarily indicative of the rest of the world and indeed is not something that concerns most of our portfolio decisions, nor most of our, our clients, uh, those of you on, on the call today. Um, but it doesn't really matter which currency you, you chose. Once the invasion started at the end of February, pretty much the dollar was king and there was a flight to safety. Um, in addition to that, I would say that if you think back to uh, basic finance 101, if, if you took a finance class, uh, interest rate differential does really matter when it comes to currency relative strength. So if the US is having, let's say a 4% uh, six month um, cash rate available in the market in treasuries, and you know Europe is having a one and a half percent or 2% cash rate available in the markets, the dollar should strengthen because you can earn more interest by just holding your cash in dollars than in euros. So that will also drive currency strength. And indeed the Fed has acted faster, quicker and uh, larger than other central banks to increase that interest rate differential uh, between currencies, which has been another wind at the back of, of the dollar. And I know that lots of people have asked, you know, what about alternatives? What else is there? And as I've, um, if you tuned into our May 22 update, you may recall that I said there were four basic trades. You could be uh, long oil, you could be short Bitcoin. You could have sat in cash, which has a, a small positive return year to date. And then there's everything else um, with varying degrees of success or failure. So there's really only been four trades. And indeed, even the oil trade has come off a little bit um, since the height of, of fear um, in, in April or June, um, where now we're only up 17% year to date. That obviously has been spurred on by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, even things like gold have not been much of a, a safe haven or a protection against inflation as uh, they've lost around about 10% year to date. All of these numbers are in dollar terms. And the great libertarian promise of Bitcoin um, losing the shackles of uh, government intervention and truly being a hedge against currency deflation has proven to be uh, even more of a challenge this year as uh, Bitcoin and other large digital currencies are down a similar amount, but over 50% uh, year to date. One thing you may recall is a portfolio we decision we made early in the year to purchase uh, low duration treasury inflation protected securities or TIPS as a hedge in the portfolio to at least absorb some of the shock of uh, inflation that was already happening at that time and we thought would continue for you know, nine to 12 months uh, after we've, we made that portfolio decision. And we were asked a lot about why didn't we choose uh, the normal tips, if you will, the longer dated tips, 10 year, 15, 20 year tips, et cetera. And as you can see, 
this has been a valuable lesson that although all tips do have a an adjustment for inflation, their principal adjusts upwards by the amount of inflation just recently measured, um, tips are still sensitive to interest rate rises. So in fact, if you have a 20-year tip, uh, and the average duration in the tips index is around about 10. So let's say you have a 10-year tip uh, and rates go up 4% as they have, you're still going to lose you know, on the order of, of 15 or 20% uh, within that single bond uh, in the near term. And of course, if you do hold the actual bond to maturity, we'll get that back. But there is some mark-to-market -market pain along the way. So our thinking back in January and February when we made these decisions and implemented this across many portfolios was we'd rather get some of the inflation protection or insurance in the portfolio, but we'd rather avoid having some of the longer duration uh, challenges that come with a rising rate environment. So in a way, tips at the same time push and pull. The value is being pushed upwards by the inflation adjustment, but they're being pulled back downwards by the fact that the central bank is probably raising rates if you are in a high inflationary environment. And of course, there are many other strategies out in the marketplace, uh, more sophisticated strategies. Um, hedge funds are often quoted as being fantastic diversifiers. Uh, these are the um, category averages of the Credit Suisse indices of long short hedge funds. Um, not quite as bad as just being long equities, but certainly nothing to, to hang your hat on. And, uh, and others have been similarly challenged, uh, whether it's merger arbitrage or other uh, more sophisticated strategies. And in fact, some of them have been extremely challenged. Some of the less liquid strategies like private credit have been um, particularly challenging in this environment, given that they have uh, a lot worse liquidity and there has been a liquidity premium in the marketplace uh, year to date. And now I'd like to turn it over to Sam Lees just to go through some of the main themes that we're seeing in the marketplace and indeed how we're uh, addressing them and what we're looking forward to, uh, what we're expecting to see going forward in the marketplace from here. Thanks, Chris. Uh, so here we've got a, a matrix um, showing where we, how we think about um, the markets and the main themes that we're thinking about at the moment. Uh, I'm not going to go through and, and read all this off because it's quite a busy slide, um, but the slides will be made available so um, you can go back and and look at this again. Um, but broadly, we're going to look at um, the Russian invasion, um, the impact inflation's had, um, a look at uh, stock markets and rising rates, and then a brief look at um, COVID and um, the impact that that's having at the moment. So you may remember uh, this slide from, from our last webinar and um, much is, is the same, I would say. Um, it, the invasion is still um, a quagmire, as it says at the top, and it's a big problem for energy prices and food prices, um, particularly with the, uh, the export of grain from Ukraine, which um, followed the news you saw that uh, Russia um, went back on that deal and then has since done a U-turn on that. So um, exports of grain are still going to flow through the corridor. Um, but it's worth noting that I think the 19th of November is when that deal would expire. So we would um, anticipate some volatility as we um, get closer to, to that deadline. But more broadly, um, obviously, the war has seen a, a huge displacement and there's uh, a humanitarian um, crisis or disaster that goes along with that. Um, but for European nations um, that are suffering from um, you know, the cost of energy, dealing with that influx of migrants is another strain on, on those economies and those nations. And you can see more sort of nationalist sentiment um, coming to the fore in, in some areas. Um, looking more broadly uh, in terms of NATO and how that um, is responding to the war. Um, it's, it feels like like a new Cold War, but in a in a from a different angle, because um, Russia is not the same as it was um, back in the uh, back in the Cold War. Um, but it still has uh, some weight, as you can see with uh, uh, their response to to the grain exports out of out of Ukraine but also their ability to possibly use ta tactical nuclear weapons. 
and in that conflict and that would be a, a big um, create a lot of volatility in the markets if, if something like that were to happen um, which basically which creates a lot of uncertainty particularly in the in our European exposures um, from a portfolio perspective uh, we have actually reduced um, some of our European exposure at our recent investment committee um, so you would see that um, in in the portfolios going forward um, there's a, a slight reduction in the allocation to Europe um, but more broadly the larger I suppose the larger issue outside of Europe with uh, with the Russian invasion is um, is China's uh, calculations as regards Taiwan and obviously uh, a war in Taiwan that would directly involve the US would be a, a bigger test of um, uh, of um, of markets and um, for investors and global supply chains um, and uh, everything else so it would be a it would be a similar um, a similar response I guess um, in markets but um, a few magnitudes larger were that to happen uh, so moving on inflation has been uh, at the forefront of I think everyone's minds um, particularly around uh, the uh, the rising uh, the central bank responses to uh, to the inflationary pressures that we've seen uh, so here we've got uh, we've got the UK um, and the US uh, UK on the left and the US on the right UK inflation is now um, into double digits so it's over 10 percent and the US has uh, crept up to 8.2 as of September um, but there is a divergence in in those two paths so the US uh, is let's say flattening out a bit more while in the UK um, we're still seeing um, the trend is still very much um, up uh, there's a um, there's a definite difference uh, in terms of uh, the US and the US dollar obviously the US benefits from a stronger dollar but they also are net exporters of energy, particularly natural gas, um, whereas uh, in Europe and certainly in, in the UK, um, we are going to struggle a bit more this winter with um, obviously with the um, impact of the Russian war um, and the impact that's having on the flow of gas and um, energy prices generally. Uh, so central banks uh, as Chris mentioned before they have limited tools that they can use to deal with inflation um, but um, the one they have is raising rates and that's um, that's continued with the US I think, slightly ahead in their hiking cycle um, versus uh, the UK and and Europe um, and as it's their their only weapon against um, basically against fighting inflation it's had um, impacts uh, across um, companies in terms of how they they can respond and it is worth noting sam as we uh, discussed uh, we've discussed several times is that inflation is always a lagging uh, indicator of things that happened a few months ago so when you see it creep through to prices which then um, show up in in an inflation metric whichever inflation metric you want cpi PC, um, you know, X food, X energy, whatever basket you're you're measuring, um, it takes a few months for the the effects to trickle through. So what you might be seeing, or what we might be seeing now, is really where the state of play was a couple of months ago, and not necessarily where it is today. Um, and to wit, just two weeks ago, we had in fact a negative spot price for natural gas in the Netherlands, um, which is just stunning. Um, I would say it's never happened before, although we know that there was a negative spot price for physical delivery of barrels of oil in West Texas uh, about a year and a half ago also, which was uh, quite an interesting time. Um, so there are you know, hopeful signs in terms of the main component of inflation um, that is really driving both the US and UK inflation metrics, which is that the, you know, the real-time instances are that um, you know the stockpiles of natural gas in Europe are 93 or 94 percent full so hopefully it's a mild winter and we don't need to draw down that to zero or indeed um, force the um, force the issue of rationing any more than than many countries and many people already are um, 
as well as having some, I think it was 11 tankers of liquefied natural gas off the coasts of Europe waiting for terminals to open up and storage to open up so they could offload their um, cargo of, of LNG, um, mainly from Qatar, but I believe a bit from the US also. Uh, so, you know, there is almost a, a glut of natural gas in real time, you know, in the past two weeks than what is showing up in the, again, the lagging inflation indicators um, that economists use uh, to look forward. So again, there is some hope that the main drivers of inflation are, uh, if not under control, they're at least trending in the right direction. And now I'm moving on just to look at the, I suppose, the impact of those rising rates on um, stocks. Uh, here we look at the uh, the S and P five hundred, and what we've done, if you remember from last time, is on the right hand side we've got the the annual performance for twenty 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 one and twenty twenty two year to date, and you can see for the, those prior years the performance has been fantastic, and they were a big part of um, the returns overall that we saw for the for the S and P five hundred. Um, but this year has been um, obviously quite a big pullback. Um, partly driven by um, central banks raising interest rates and then the cost of capital um, becoming more and more expensive. Uh, so you can see 55% of uh, the losses this year have been um, attributed to, to those, um, those eight stocks. And in the bottom left, you can see the sort of the, the flip side of that. So we've got on the dark green line, the equal weighted S&P. Um, so this isn't market cap weighted it's not done by the size of the companies it's just um, equal weighted across the board and the returns there are still negative but not to the same extent as the um the market cap weighted one where those those big tech names had more of an impact on the upside and then consequently on the downside as well um, and that's certainly one thing that we'd um we had moved to um to respond to and we had moved away from uh, the big sort of tech names the covid winners um, towards uh, more sort of um, say quote boring companies but companies with big cash balances that are better able to weather these types of periods where um, the cost of capital is high but if you have big cash balances then um, that impact is, is le less for your business and again, it is worth noting, uh, just to make sure everyone picked up on what Sam just said there about the connection of uh, stock prices and rising rates, which is something we do get asked quite a bit, which is, um, generally speaking, besides just raising some of the cost of capital of a, a business doing business, uh, because they might need to borrow or they might have to finance things or whatever it might be, when you're actually valuing the company, public stocks are generally valued using a discounted cash flow model. And in the denominator of how do you, you know, value tomorrow's cash flows today is an interest rate. And you often use something like a, a T-bill or a one-year, two-year treasury or something to that effect to get the, an appropriate discount rate and then perhaps add a risk premium to that. So as rates go up, all of a sudden, tech stocks that have nothing to do with the energy market, which is really driving inflation, are really getting hammered by, uh, by the rates, uh, rates going up. And again, a lot of these uh, large tech companies in America might not have much debt outstanding, or the debt outstanding they have is nominal relative to their value. You know, Apple has a, a few billion, I know I do that in air quotes, just a few billion of debt outstanding. Um, but when compared to the two and a half trillion dollar market cap, uh, really, you could round down and say they have no debt outstanding. So how could they even lose 13% you know, year to date? And it comes down to, again, the central banks raising rates to combat the energy-fueled inflation um, and, and thus driving the valuation models that, that pretty much everyone in finance ever uses to value a stock or a bond or any investment as a stream of cash flows. Uh, and it hits those, those stocks particularly hard. Now, that's notwithstanding some of the more interesting ones on there, like a Facebook that has uh, kind of put a large pile of money in the center of the room and and burned it praying to the god of metaverse happening and either they're going to be the next the first 10 trillion dollar company or they're going to meander lower uh, for much longer um, so facebook is is a slightly different story but broadly speaking across tech stocks the connection and the valuation is due to how central banks have raised rates to fight energy inflation and that then uh, impacts how everyone values them and that, that obviously transfers more directly across to, to the bond market. And here we look at the, the impact of rising rates uh, on, on different types of bonds. So we've got um, short and in, intermediate 
and long duration um, bonds. Long duration, we're looking at sort of plus 10 years um, or 12.9 for, for this one particularly. Um, and what we're trying to show here is the impact of being shorter duration versus longer duration. Uh, so you can see with the, um, the orange line there, the senior loan ETF, um, which is part of our models. Um, the interesting thing about that is um, the structure of, of that, um, those notes mean that um, they adjust as inflation, uh, as interest rates change uh, with a slight lag. Um, so the duration on that is very low, see about 0.6 um, at the time of updating the slide. Um, so being shorter duration in a rising rate environment is a, is a better place to be. And as we get through the hiking cycle, um, what we would look to do is probably lengthen that duration. And um, given where we are now, and we'd expect um, the Fed to hike by another 75 basis points, um, that's going to take us closer um, to that uh, that terminal rate, um, which, you know, barring any unforeseen circumstances, we'd expect to be about 4.6 to 5% um, in 2023. Um, and markets are obviously going to price that in. So um, probably before we get to that point, um, we'd be looking to, to make some changes on that side. But for the moment, and historically, being shorter duration has been a, has been a better place to be. One other point to make is, um, as Chris mentioned, the R word. But if if we are moving towards a recession um, in the US uh, in in twenty twenty three, then uh, one thing you'd want to do is increase your credit quality. And while floating rate notes have a, a good yield and a, a very low duration, the credit quality isn't that good. So um, looking ahead to that, um, reducing that sort of uh, lower credit quality exposure would be something that we would uh, we would also be doing. Exactly, and I know that was something that came up in a client meeting uh, we had uh, two or three weeks ago, which is you know if senior loans are really the perfect investment for a rising rate environment because they have a floating coupon that adjusts upwards as rates rise. So therefore, you're not really getting the duration. Um, impact that other bonds are uh, how could you possibly lose any money in them and the answer of how could you lose you know six percent year to date is that twofold one they tend to be extremely illiquid so they don't trade much so in times of volatility the markets really do value liquidity more than illiquidity and they tend to be below investment grade so high yield or uh, pejoratively junk bonds um, so that's all well and good if you're getting paid for it, but in an extreme market dislocation, uh, you will still lose money in senior loans. Um, this slide is, is probably one of the most interesting slides, um, but also unfortunately one of the hardest to see. Um, so please do have a look at it um, when, when the slides go around. But what we're looking at here is a way of um, measuring recession risk, if you will. So what we have um, is a chart showing um, the difference between the two-year and the 10-year yield on a U.S. Treasury, um, and that's tracked on the left-hand axis. And then we've got the U.S. stocks um, tracked on the right-hand, and the stock line is the dark line, and the two-year minus the 10-year yield is the light green line. And then we have some gray boxes which indicate recessions, and then the red circles show when the two-year minus the 10-year yield uh, went negative. So what we're showing here is um, a sort of correlation between when that difference between the yield on the two-year and the yield on the 10-year treasury, um, it's called inverts, um, basically goes negative. And then what that looks like um, as relates to um, the movement of stock, stock market and uh, where it is in relation to recessions. And so what you can see is that when, when that inverts, when the twos and tens invert, um, it does pretty closely predict the recession. Um, it's not obviously a, a guarantee, um, but you can see that where the red circles are relative to the, to the gray lines, um, that there is a, a correlation there. Um, a couple other things to note is that um, looking at those recession periods, 
we look back to the 1970s and um, in five of those last eight recessions uh, you you exited when you exit the recession as it was classified um, the stock prices were above where they were when you entered that period um, so the uh, where that uh, logically takes you is that um, being in the market even through those periods um, you can it, it is likely um, based on history that um, being in the market through that period um, you may end up at a, at a better place in terms of those stock returns um, than when you entered that recessionary period um, in terms of those the portfolio actions you can see at the bottom of that slide there um, in terms of moving towards um, a recession, if that's the direction that we're going in, which um, seems to be the case. Um, increasing credit quality and lowering duration are, are things that you would want to do. But also, you may want to look at increasing the equity allocation slightly. And these aren't big moves, um, but um, more sort of tilts or slight slight adjustments to, uh, to the portfolio in order to position it um, hopefully better for that period where you get through um, through the recession and out the other side. And that's worth noting. I know it's something we've debated quite vigorously um, here at Tanager is, um, you know, if we are heading into a recession, and again, we're just talking about the U.S. because that is 60% of the global stock market, and that is um, a bit more than half of the global bond market. So, um, you know, we're just looking at the U.S., not, not the U.K., which is around three percent of both or four percent of both so much much smaller in terms of uh global investment portfolios um if not you know our lives being living here but certainly in terms of global investment portfolios the us is, is dominant uh, is a dominant discussion to have um is that the stock market prices generally do not actually re reflect the real economy um, because they are a discount mechanism and they tend to look far into the future, um, you can have an astonishing fact, um, such as uh, what Sam had dug up that, you know, in five of the last eight recessions, so more than half of, of the recessions in, let's say, recent modern history, uh, the, the S&P has actually ended the recession higher than where it started, um, which is truly astonishing. You would think that it's, um, you know, that there's nothing but losing money uh, in the market in a recession, which is not the case, again, because the stock market really doesn't have a huge connection to the real-time uh, economic conditions. That's very different from the bond market. The bond market does have more of a mirror uh, held up to um, immediate real-time uh, economic conditions. So when you enter a recession or go into any sort of um, real-world economic challenges, for example, you do not want to have lower quality bonds and you do not want to have perhaps longer duration um, uh, bonds. So you probably want higher credit quality and you probably want lower duration uh, to kind of sit on the sidelines and, and wait with dry powder until the storm is passed. And then revisit that as you get more comfortable and confident as an investor to move back into the markets and perhaps increase your um, duration and lower your credit quality to earn more yield and have more chance for, for capital appreciation as the real economy approves. And we've kept um, the COVID slide in here. Um, it does feel um, it's slightly less relevant for us, but um, it is obviously still around and still still a big problem um, in certain certain areas, particularly in China. I would say we've got um, China's COVID zero policy, which uh, is closely linked to um, the president um, and his premiership. Uh, at the recent conferences, there was no um, no suggestion that, that was going to be relaxed in any way. Um, I guess you would expect that, um, given how closely he's tied himself to that policy. Um, but what that means, uh, certainly for supply chains and the Chinese economy as well, is that there's a constant stop-start with the with COVID lockdowns and certainly some a lot of dissatisfaction domestically, uh, which uh, kind of spills over in terms of um, China's quite substantial influence in in emerging markets, but also um, in terms of global supply chains so it is it is still an issue and it is still um having an impact um in a positive way we, we'd hope to see some kind of relaxation of, the, of that policy within china um, in order to get a bit more certainty around um, companies planning for the future and um, supply chains getting uh, unlocked a bit more um, but there is um, there's no guarantees 
and guarantees there. Yeah, and really the last remnants that we're seeing of COVID again in investment markets, not talking about the real world. And I know, um, I assume most of us on the call have had COVID. It seems like everyone has had it um, uh, so far, if not twice or three times, um, is uh, really as it's impacting the zero uh, COVID policy of China. And as those two things conflict, still having COVID and having a zero COVID policy, the factories are shutting down. And that means that you know, Apple is not selling all the iPhones it possibly can, or indeed every electronics manufacturer is having challenges meet meeting the supply chain. Um, I, I'm absolutely amazed that some cars are being sold without the chips that control like the USB plug in the dashboard saying, oh, we'll come back when we have it. We're expecting to have it in Q4 or Q1, and we'll install the functional USB plug in that little peg where the, the USB plug should be, but they just can't get enough of those chips. Um, this is particularly true with automakers and particularly true with lower value chips, such as you know a mass-produced simple USB chip. Um, as automakers really, um, I think, got on the bad list, the naughty list of um, the chip fabs uh, at the beginning of COVID when they cut all their orders to zero and um, left them high and dry with excess capacity. And they've been slow to get back in the queue um, to, to order the parts they need to make their cars. Um, but you know, knock on wood, thankfully, um, COVID is not the day-to-day the -day, uh, discussion point inside the markets. I'm just checking out, there's a, a couple of questions that have come through. Uh, I'll, pick up the, um, I'll pick up what's on the slide at the moment, and then uh, we'll, uh, we'll come back to the, the questions. Um, and please obviously do use the uh, the Q and A Q and A button. There's a few come through, but please um, please do send through any more questions if um, if they do uh, spring to your mind. Uh, so in terms of what's um, impacting the USD and GBP uh, cable, um, the themes from last time you can see in the in the top left in that little screenshot those those do still apply. Um, our relationship with our, our closest trading partners um, has taken a hit um, thanks to Brexit. Um, and uh, more broadly, I guess the, the fact that the UK has been in the news so much of late has been um, slightly depressing. Um, what that sort of translates to um, at a high level is that borrowing costs for for the UK as an economy are going up, and also the uh, um, the strength of sterling uh, versus other currencies is falling. Um, if you think back to when Liz Truss became prime minister, I think the, the rate was about 1.15, and then we touched intraday low of around 1.03 following the, the mini budget, and we didn't really we didn't get back to um, where it was when she became prime minister until. Um, markets were a bit more assured of, of who was running the treasury um, and that we could perhaps get a plan in place for um, managing our, our borrowing costs. Um, but you can see that sterling versus, um, uh, sterling versus the dollar and euro versus the dollar, um, the euro is, um, has outperformed um, versus sterling versus the dollar. And for our perspective in terms of the portfolios and how we think about um, the UK, it's hard to see uh, something that would be a real tailwind for sterling at this point. Um, and what that translates to in terms of the portfolios has been uh, reducing some of the um, hedge to sterling that we had in some of the, the fixed income assets um, in the portfolios. Um, because uh, at the moment, our view is that um, there isn't a lot that's going to um, be an uplift for sterling versus the dollar, um, so in the in the medium term. And and this is by far the thing that we get asked the most by clients is, you know, what about the, the the exchange rate? Is this a good time to convert dollars to pounds or pounds to dollars, or is it a good time to take a mortgage for a house, et cetera? And um, un unfortunately, the the answer to most of those questions is. Uh, it, we don't see any sort of near-term strength in the pound, or any reason to to see it going back to you know one three, one four, one five. Um, and if anything, the the moves now are are generally noise. Um, you can see it's been grinding lower year to date. It's down fifteen to seventeen percent, depending on which day we check the uh, the charts. Um, and indeed, touching a an all-time low or at least a hundred-year low, it seems. Um, 
uh, at the end of the mini budget fiasco and uh, just really doesn't have the characteristics of a strong currency or a strengthening currency, which would be relatively higher interest rates than other currencies, um, some sort of global demand for it, either as a reserve currency, which means it's a safe haven, haven like the Swiss franc or the dollar, uh, or indeed some sort of need for um, corporates to hold it in reserve because they're doing lots of trade with that particular currency block. Um, and with the UK losing you know, 10% or more of its uh, trade with Europe and generally having a, a less stable environment, uh, it really harkens back to Quebec trying to secede from uh, Canada in the 80s uh, when at that point in time Montreal was kind of the center of economic uh, activity in Canada and then shortly thereafter um, every major global business looked at Montreal or looked at Quebec and said well they might secede at any moment so let's just put all of our international uh, efforts into Toronto which is not going to secede from from Canada and it's a lot more stable. And so over time, you know, you can see within those two cities, which aren't too terribly far apart, uh, that, that um, Toronto has, has strengthened in the last 40 years and Montreal is relatively weakened. And that's kind of what the, the international markets are looking at with, with the pound, unfortunately. Um, and where that really reflects in day-to-day -day life, at least for myself as a, as a new homeowner, is looking at mortgage rates and um, you know, the interest rates that are being charged in the market today. And uh, without having some sort of... Uh, cracking the back of inflation here. Uh, I don't know where, when interest rates are going to be going lower, even though they're still relatively low uh, compared to the US. And indeed, um, relative to the Euro or other major currencies, it, there is no there is no massive signal that says, oh yes, the pound is going to be strengthening and going back to any of the prior levels. Uh, this last retracement up has really just been reversing the mini budget and, and whatever disaster that was, uh, whether it was in looking at pounds or uh, government borrowing costs or whatever it might have been. So here we're looking at, um, to look back at the uh, the matrix that we saw earlier on, but uh, a look at what we would, um, what we currently, how we're currently positioned and then uh, what the next change might look like. So we've got the Russian invasion, uh, inflation, stock markets, rising rates, COVID, all the things that are impacting our thinking. Uh, so for the, the Russian invasion, uh, what that what that would look like um, is see it's some positive news uh, about a resolution uh, to the war um, and obviously rebuilding of of Ukraine, and we would take that as a very strong signal. Um, we'd probably increase. Um, Look to increase equity allocation, the equity allocation across the board, um, but certainly um, raise it um, in Europe, uh, whereas it's it's currently um, reduced down to about sixteen percent across equity and fixed income. You can see the second bullet point there. Um, from an inflationary perspective, um, our allocation to low duration um, tips um, has been reduced slightly. Uh, down to 4.6, um, and we've increased the allocation to to shorter duration, but not inflation protected, um, and that's a function of the sort of the divergence of the inflationary stories in the U.S. Um, versus uh, in the U.K. Uh, so we think that the U.S. is further through its hiking cycle, and so we'd anticipate um, inflation moderating more. You can see that in the path of the the inflationary prints that we've seen in the UK versus the US, where it's it's flat, it's flatter in the US, um, but still rising um, on the UK side. Uh, so increasing in increasing the weight to corporate bonds and uh, increasing duration as those yields normalise would be uh, would be something that we'd be looking to do uh, as and when that that happens. And again, we have seen some, um, you know, more contemporaneous inflation metrics, like I said, the energy prices in Europe, uh, or at least the natural gas prices in the Netherlands, which is the main uh, benchmark for um, for energy across a lot of Europe is natural gas is the main driver of, of home heating and electricity production, etc. Uh, actually turning negative for spot um, liquefied natural gas uh, as, as storage capacity just wasn't available. Um, it was only for a few hours. But the point is that, you know, it wasn't seven, eight 
nine euros uh, uh, per unit, it had gone actually negative for a brief period of time, uh, which is strongly encouraging when you think again that a lot of the economic metrics come through on a, a two, three or four month lag um, for the prices to trickle through to the end output of a company in, in, in a production. And we're seeing that even in, uh, in the US where personal consumption or PCE is, is now moving to be more demand driven and less supply driven. And what that means is in supply side is, you know, companies have higher wages or copper costs more to make something or uh, to ship a piece of furniture from China to, to uh, New York costs more or whatever it is from the supply side is pushing inflation higher. Whereas if you have demand side uh, inflation drivers, those are more being pulled by the consumer or whoever's purchasing your good. You know, it could be another company. It doesn't have to be um, just a, a, a consumer. Um, and what we're seeing now is in the last three months on the left-hand side, you can see these are the monthly prints of PCE contribution um, in 2022, that the green bar, which is the supply side component, uh, has really went away or at least has gotten greatly smaller in the last three months than it had been in the first six months. Whereas the demand side, so the, con the American consumer, the blue, uh, base uh, is is still strong, is still there. So there's still a demand, um, which is consistent with anyone who's ever lived in the U.S. Uh, we are a consumption society in the U.S. And so the, the consumer is always willing to borrow a bit more on the credit card or take a bit larger home equity line of credit to um, to keep their lifestyle. We definitely subscribe to the economic theory of consumption smoothing over our lifetime, uh, but that is still strong. So it is encouraging to see at least the supply side uh, inflation metrics and baskets of goods that are driven by supply side inputs uh, coming back and normalizing um, to where they had been. And so as we're seeing that, um, as Sam had just alluded to, uh, you know, we are looking at how do we react to um, inflation, let's say smoothing, at least in the US, which again is, is 50 to 60% of the global investment marketplace. Uh, and what does that mean? And as that smooths, you assume that the Fed will stop raising rates because they don't like raising rates. They don't like causing pain uh, across the economy and indeed in the stock market, but uh, they really need to see some inflation prints coming a bit lower. And uh, this is a very timely and interesting webinar in that in an hour, we'll see what the Fed is thinking this time uh, where the market is pricing in another 75 basis point hike today at uh, 6 p.m. London time. But as rates normalize, let's say in the March to June timeframe of next year, and the markets are implying a terminal rate of 5%, as Sam said, uh, we will be extending portfolio duration and increasing the corporate bond weight um, to increase the yield um, uh, in the portfolios and probably to catch some capital upside as uh, bond prices rebound um, if there is less of a, a threat of rate rises uh, in the future. And also looking at the, the stock market, you know, we're not saying that this should be a time to to plunge in both feet. Uh, the water's fine, uh, but as it does take time for um, you know inflation metrics to trickle through, and it does take time for um, for markets to react, they do price in things quite aggressively looking forward. So, um, for for many of our clients that have been underweight equity, uh, there could be a time to ease into the market, and by that we mean again not going both feet in 100%, but maybe increasing equities from you know, 55 to 60% and moving in that direction as opposed to keeping a, a, a below average uh, equity weight uh, in, in the portfolios today. And when we think of average portfolio, we're thinking of the standard 60-40 portfolio is kind of the, the rule of thumb uh, in the marketplace and for most clients. And similarly with the rising rates, uh, we've talked about this a lot and we can't overemphasize how important this is to the marketplace today um, and uh, where, um, how that impacts and trickles through to the rest of the economy, whether it's stock market prices for you know, large computer companies or whether it's um, you know, absolutely smashing treasuries to have the worst year of treasuries since 1788 uh, or indeed the worst bond market since the 1930s. Um, you know, we're very, very hopeful that the, the rate rises are going to be uh, terminal at five, which is what the market has priced in in Q2 of next year. And that will allow us to, um, to reap the rewards of finally having yield to invest and to earn uh, on behalf of all of our clients. Uh, it's been certainly a tough several years with uh, rates zero or indeed negative in much of the Eurozone uh, that, that that half of the portfolio has been a real challenge 
um, to play more defense and have absolutely no offensive capability uh, in terms of generating a positive return uh, for client portfolios. Uh, we did have an interesting question about the uh, economic impact of the midterm elections um, next year, or indeed looking ahead further afield into um, the next presidential cycle in 2024 in the US. Um, I would say that it's extremely difficult to know what's going to happen uh, tomorrow, much less next week, or indeed um, looking ahead two plus years. Um, as all many of us on the call are Americans ourselves and follow American politics out of um, out of habit and uh, and certainly some sort of morbid curiosity of what's going on over there, uh, we have not built in assumptions as to um, how that would impact portfolios or indeed move the markets. Uh, by and large, the races tend to be 50-50, and most of the models that are predictive are looking at you know, Republicans picking up a few seats, but they only need a few seats to have a slim majority in the House. So if that's the case, I would imagine it's probably more of a, of a delay tactic and not as much of a, oh my God, let's rip up the rule book and set it on fire. Um, so we're looking at more of a um, kind of a stagnation in Washington, D.C. coming out of it as opposed to um, as opposed to anything that's really market moving. Now that's glossing over all the social impact that can happen out of um, having a, a change of house control, uh, which is probably beyond the scope of, of our discussion today to talk about the social impact of um, one party or the other controlling Congress or controlling the, the presidency. Um, but as far as the impact on the, on the markets, we don't see a, a meaningful change one way or the other. And then last but not least, uh, COVID, as we went through, uh, as we discussed briefly, has not been um, as impactful uh, this year, or at least in the last six months, as it has been in the prior two years, uh, thankfully. Um, you know, thank the Lord for small blessings uh, that we've somehow managed to come through a, a pandemic as of this point. And hopefully we're not looking at uh, it raising its ugly head over the winter this year. Um, but uh, we're certainly on alert for it and looking at how this does impact you know, global supply chains, particularly in electronics and automobile manufacturers and what that's doing to, um, to their ability to produce goods and services for sale. Um, but as the, um, as the broader COVID uh, specter that reared its ugly head uh, for the prior 18 months is not really um, in our vision today. And it's really not something that's moving markets as we can see. So I'll just take this time to remind everyone that this is a, a fantastic time to remember best principles of investments, which is to stay the course and to stay uh, invested in your plan. Uh, certainly you've spoken to someone at Tanager about your own family, households, personal uh, financial plan and investment plan to help make that financial plan of success. Uh, and if there is a period of panic or if there is a period of, of throwing your hands up in the air and missing the best few days in the marketplace, uh, the difference to annual returns is really um, just absolutely astounding. Uh, if you, again, if you were to miss the best five days of a 40-year period, it actually impacts your portfolio about one and a quarter percent per year uh, over those 40 years. So really making a, a tremendous difference uh, in, in the actual realized returns. So just as the markets can be a challenge on the way down, they can respond just as violently, if not more so on the upside, uh, when they do recover, when there is a spark that hits the, uh, the tinder, um, it really does go up. So you don't want to miss the best days in the market, which is often what happens um, for behavioral finance purposes to get more comfortable and to want to get back into the market after you've um, gotten out of it you've often missed the rebound already. Um, and that's something we're here to help you with is to help you stay the course and make sure that you're staying on your plan and that you can uh, achieve your financial goals that you've set for your family. And to reiterate some of the things that we had said last time in terms of what can be done, uh, looking at tax planning, I know we've been aggressively looking at where we can do tax loss harvesting to offset gains, where we can help clients take uh, advantage of opportunities to diversify away from single stock concentration or legacy stock concentration. Uh, are there ways to get out of some sort of tax disadvantaged investment, whether it's a PFIC for IRS purposes or a non-reporting fund or OIG for HMRC purposes? Is there ways to lessen the impact of, of that after tax by taking advantage of uh, the current market conditions and get back into the market uh, in short order with something that is tax efficient and is uh, appropriate for someone who's a household that's paying taxes in two jurisdictions according to two different uh, tax authorities? 
also look at gifting and Roth conversions. You know, the, when you have a nadir in the market, it's a fantastic time to have the least amount of tax impact immediately to have the greatest impact down the road. Um, doing a Roth conversion today with a depressed asset, you capture all the rebound in your um, tax-free account. Fantastic. And the same with gifting. Uh, as the rebound happens, if you are in a position to gift to uh, family and relatives and, and loved ones, uh, it's better perhaps to get the um, taxable gain in their account as opposed to yours. So it's a great time to do um, you know, intergenerational wealth and estate planning as well. We uh, we did have a few questions that came through prior to the webinar, and there, there was one um, in particular I just wanted to touch on, which was um, what to do if if you're planning uh, something in the next two to five years, um, say retiring or uh, a purchase or, or something like that, and how is that how is how have recent events in the market impacted that? Um, and so that's that's a great time to get in touch with your financial advisor um, and go through your your wealth plan that you've discussed and um, any new inputs um, that you have or, or things that have changed that you want to um, to go over um, then they will be able to help you um, walk through that and um, how recent market events would uh, would impact those those future plans so definitely do reach out to your your financial advisor in that case and yet one of the other questions we received uh, from yourselves uh, prior to the summit, uh, the webinar um, was, you know, looking at things like when we, when do we believe the market will rebound to Q3 2021 highs? Um, how long for the S&P to get back to where it was, um, you know, at the end of last year, et cetera, and, and several of those. Um, again, we're, we're less of market prognosticators um, in that respect to put an absolute number to it and to, to absolutely get, um, you know, the dates correct but what we can say is that it will go back it always has um, markets have not ever you know fallen and then stayed low for extended periods of time they do go back over time as you know as as the economy recovers from whatever recession or whatever shock uh, there was so we are certain that the s p or the FTSE or the whatever index you'd like to use or metric for an investment portfolio will be going back to where it was um, I would expect it to be in the shorter time frame, as in you know, 12 months, as opposed to the longer time frame, which would be you know, seven, eight, nine years or, or beyond. Um, again, when the market has clarity on interest rate direction, um, mainly in the US, but also in other uh, developed markets, uh, you will see the markets um, you know, treating that positively. And um, currently the markets are saying that that's going to happen in Q2 of 2023. That's where the quote, terminal rate is going to be uh, for Federal Reserve uh, interest rate rises. So we would expect that sometime in 2023 is when we're uh, going back in that direction and talking about, you know, retesting the highs uh, that were previously set. And one other question we had through was about property and infrastructure funds um, as in, in terms of a diversification benefit. Um, we do consider things like that and uh, we do regularly review all, all the other options that we have um within the constraints of um, obviously reporting status funds um, and, and other things like that uh, it's it's worth noting certainly on the, on the real estate side for global and for us um, they're both down in excess of um, the us stock market um so us was us uh, real estate was down at 26.8 year to date and global was down 29.5 versus 20.7 um and 19. Uh, so, it's certainly in, in recent history um, for, for this year, um, that sort of longer duration asset wouldn't wouldn't have been um, worth uh, including as a, as a diversifier. But we we do continue to look at, at that and and other options like uh, commodities and other and other things as we review the portfolios. Yeah, absolutely. And again. To, to beat the, the dead horse of rising rates. Um, certainly property and infrastructure are things that are closely involved with debt investing, uh, or at least debt funding um, to purchase the assets. And I think it would be very much a challenge to um, to look at real estate, whether it's through REITs or even through physical real estate uh, in a rising rate environment, um, just looking at you know, what, what UK personal mortgage rates have done in the last uh, month or so. Um, and then think of that writ large where you have a, a company or a REIT or some large investor that's doing this with hundreds of billions of dollars 
uh, perhaps for a fund, and uh, they're going to be similarly challenged um, in terms of property and infrastructure. Um, and then when you add into that the, the general illiquidity that you find when you have real assets like property or, or owning a bridge or an airport, um, it, it's definitely not something that we're spending too much time looking at, and they would not have been fantastic investments um, you know, through this period, given the, the environment that we're in. And so with that, I realize that we have uh, just went over time. I just want to thank everyone for taking their time and for uh, sending in some fantastic questions and, uh, and, and entertaining our thoughts uh, on the market uh, with your valuable time. And as you have questions, do reach out to your your contact and representative at Tanager. We're always happy to, to, to talk or to discuss these in more detail or indeed to discuss these in more depth as it applies to your particular portfolio and situation. Uh, so thank you once again and have a great day.